Yeah, see, I, I put my microphone right in my face. So you get all of the good noises that come out of my mouth. Are you a busy Ruby developer who wants to take their freelance business to the next level? Interested in working smarter, not harder? Then check out the upcoming book, Next Level Freelancing, Developer Edition. Practical steps to work less, travel more, and make more money. It includes interviews and case studies with successful freelancers who have made a killing by expanding their consultancy, developed passive income through informational products, built successful SaaS products, and become rockstar consultants making a minimum of $200 an hour. There are all kinds of practical steps on getting started, and if you sign up now, you'll get 50% off when it's released. You can find it at nextlevelfreelancing.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 40 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Evan Light. Hello. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we're going to kind of work through some of the questions that have been put on our user voice uh, panel. There are a handful of them that we don't think necessarily merit a full show, um, meaning that we don't know if we could talk about them for a full hour. So we'll just ask some of the questions and then work our way through them. So the first question that I see that I want to go over is, or what do you do when prospects only want you as a full-time employee? And there's, there's a bit more to this. Um, Brian Ray put it up and it says, I'm pretty new to freelancing. I moonlight and pretty much all of my prospects in the past couple of months seem interested after a couple of conversations, but eventually they're only looking for full-time employees right now, either full-time or 30 to 40 hours of contract work, which at that point you're basically an employee working for one client, stricter hours, indefinite work, as opposed to distinct projects, etc. I'm pretty sure it's due to the fact that I can't dedicate many hours per week right now. Do you guys run into this problem, or did you when you first started out? For me, it's I tend to work for one big client and one smaller client at a time, so I'm not quite full-time with a client, but I tend to dedicate a lot of time to one client, but not full-time. And I've gotten some people who want me to work full-time, and I generally try to avoid those, period. If they, they say that's what they want, usually they're inflexible on it and just move on find someone else. At least that's been my experience. It's been a bit different. I mean, I did, I think it was two up to maybe four or five clients at a time for a while there. And it would fluctuate. Like some would be just a one-off project. Some would come and then go and then come back later. Um, right now, though, I'm basically doing full-time for one client. And it's working pretty good. I But I think the other side of it is there's some clients that want like a full-time person on-site, basically button-seat type programmer. And the whole on-site thing, I'm not flexible on. I basically decided I, I want to work where I'm most effective. And I know that's at home where I'm comfortable with my tools, my equipment. And so if they want an on-site full-time thing, I basically pass on it. If they want like an, you know, if they're okay with a remote, maybe come in every now and then like once a month for just a sync up or whatever, but full-time hours, um, I would kind of consider it based on like, you know, what kind of, what kind of revenue am I looking at to have other clients? How much do I want to work? That sort of thing. And it could end up being that, you know, I might work full time for three months and then take a month off, you know, but that's, I think there's two kind of two separate questions kind of hidden in there. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, um, as far as I, I go with the 30 to 40 hours of contract work, since, since it seems like that's what most of us deal with. Um, I'm more along the lines of what Eric said. I mean, for a long time, I would just tell people, look, I can't give you 40 hours a week. But um, I, I somehow wound up on this contract, and it, it seems to be working out all right. Um, it is still hard to get the uh, you know all forty hours that they want every week with the podcasts and other things going on. But for the most part, you know, it, it's worked out well. The money's good. the The people I'm working with are pretty awesome, and you know, so it has worked out. I don't know if I'd want to do this like for the full year. Um, and that's something that I'm kind of running up against right now. Is is they want to renew and I'm trying to decide if I want to commit to another, you know, six months or whatever of of this full-time thing because it's stressful because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it's stressful because they put constraints on you because if you have to work 40 hours, you might have to work some of those on their schedule, I assume, too, that you need to be available during certain hours. Yeah, for certain meetings and things. Um, there's a general expectation that you're around during regular work hours, and they're on the East Coast, so... They're two hours off from me anyway. 
but uh yeah it 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 does kind of get interesting um but i, I can't say that it's been awful it's, it's it's also a legally shady area that a lot of um employers find themselves in because the what connotes an employee versus what connotes a contractor is um a fuzzy line and the more constraints they place on you, the more that they're vulnerable to you being designated as an employee by the IRS, for example. Right. And yep. that's something that neither you nor they want. Right. Because they get nailed for, um, you know, basically for half of your self-employment tax and for... And then penalties for not reporting it and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, right. It's, and, it's nasty for them and it's nasty for you. Yeah, because then you're in this spot where you've got a W-2 that you may or may not know exactly how you want to deal with and you can't you can't t treat things the same way because you're an employee not a business where you're making your own business expenses and things like that so for, for the most part though if you're working from home you have your own business entity you're using your own, your own equipment and they don't put a lot of constraints on when you have to be around it's like we're having these meetings maybe and that's it um, I think you're pretty safe but you're definitely going to want to talk to a tax professional if you're worried about any of that, if, if they go 30 to 40 hours, talk to your um, accountant, maybe to a tax attorney and just make sure that you're good there. I, I don't want us to represent ourselves as knowing exactly where that line is. Right. There, I said it. So, yeah, I mean, my kind of advice is if they if they want a full time employee like on site. That's very sketchy. It's going to be really hard to say you're not an employee. And I personally decide that's like, that's the line for me. Like, no, I won't do that. If they want like full time hours and I could put those hours in however I want. And, you know, typically also if I'm willing to do the work and, you know, I don't have other commitments, I might consider it. But for the most part, I mean, it's, it's a lot of risk. It's really hard. And unless there's a lot of good upsides, I usually don't choose those things. I would rather kind of project work or like kind of part-time longer term stuff. Yeah. One other thing I want to point out um, is that I, I, I don't have a problem going on site, but only for like a week out of, you know, every few months or something like that, where it, it's an arrangement where I'm not there all the time. Um, and, th and that's where I, I really worry about getting into that gray area because at that point they're providing everything except basically my laptop. Uh, are there any other things that we want to talk about? If they're asking for an employee, do you ever try and pitch them toward freelancing or? Sure. Just, I, I don't spend a lot of effort on it because I don't think that, that I don't expect them to be interested, but I just put it out there as an opportunity. And if they want to pull that thread, then great. And if they say, sorry, we're only looking for employees, then that's fine too. Yeah. Usually it's a lot of work to educate them if they want an employee as to why it might be a good idea to pick up a, a consultant or contractor. Yes. So, so I generally take the same approach. If if they want a full-time employee, then, you know, I'll say, well, look, I'll, I'm happy to backfill until you find somebody or, you know, help train or whatever. You know, just let me know how you want to contract that. And yeah, I don't chase it too much either. All right. Should we go on to another question or is there another angle on that that we want to hit? Let's go to the next issue. Okay. So the next question is, how to get clients from a different country or a different time zone. Honestly, I really haven't had any issues with this. And by not had any issues, I mean, I've had contract contracts with people in um, China, Singapore, China. I, I have Hong Kong. <laughs> huh. um, you know, I've had a few people talk to me in Europe, people across the U S it, it really doesn't tend to be that big a deal unless they want to set up a meeting time of some kind. Um, I'm in talks with a guy in Australia right now, and, and he actually likes it because he t gets to talk to me in the morning, and I get to talk to him in the evening after I'm done working for the client that I'm doing most of my work for. But, the only thing I'd be – sorry, you're still gone. No, no, it, it's fine. I mean, you know, you're probably going to say something along the lines of what my only concern really is with it, and that is, is if they're outside the country and I have a contract with them. Bingo! How do you yeah, enforce it? How do you enforce it? Yep. You got it. <laughs> but – you know, most of these folks, they're either pretty good about, you know, prepaying or you just get into a, you get into a place with them where you get in, you, you have a relationship where you're comfortable with them, but right. yeah, it, it is. I, I don't know exactly how you would enforce it if they're out of the country. I did a contract with a guy in Dubai 
Um, and I did about $8,000 worth of work for him and I got a $4,000 deposit and that's all I ever got. Of course, he never, he never got any code, Uh, but that's all you really have to hold over him. So yeah, that's right. So that's the, that's the only thing that I've seen is, is I held the the code in collateral until he paid me. Sure. That's, and that's often what I, you look for some kind of leverage basically because the contract's only going to do you so much good. Even in the States, a contract's only going to do you so much good because is it really good? Unless it's a lot of money, is it really going to be worth your time to pursue it? Yeah. I did a contract with somebody in Canada and I, in fact, I've done it with two people and the one person, she was really good about paying me. The other guy stiffed me. So, and I really don't have any recourse for him. I can't send him to collections or anything. So. It it does happen, and it, it, it is painful. So if you're really concerned about it, what I would recommend is either get them to pay up front before you do in, before you do the work. So you basically you're just working off what they've prepaid or um, use some escrow service so that, you know, they, they get code delivered and you get money delivered at the same time. Although this sounds like we're a bit off from the – I think the original question was just how do you get clients in different – parts of the world at least that's what the original question sounded like yes that's which, what it is but the answer to that one just seems to be universally well um marketing yeah yeah exactly it, you know for me it was people that found one of my podcasts or something and uh you know they just happen to be in that part of the world next issue so eric put one in the chat and i, I really like it well that's the same one that's actually a little bit more context around it oh it is Okay, so yeah. it says, you'll mention that you'll talk about clients. A <laughs> That's lot of, a different problem. Do you want us to talk about that one? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people wanting to be freelancers are doing so because the local industry sucks. In my city or country, the marketing market for software projects is small, with low budgets, late payments, and is already saturated by all kinds of consultants. So yeah, here's it what I like think. marketing. Yeah, it is. It really is. And it's yeah. about differentiating yourself so that you can get the clients that you want. Any other angles or things to talk about there? Or? Go talk at conferences that are in some place that that you want to work or have mm-hmm. clients in. I mean, it's really just marketing. It's get people in that in that area. If you're targeting an area, get those people to know you, and so you do that however suits you best. Which yep. is go read, get clients now, and that'll help tell you how it suits you best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sorry to fall back on the recipe of go look at stuff we've talked about before, but it, that that's all I've got. No, it's okay. I actually have several friends that do that. It's um, The one that comes to mind is somebody that I talk to on a regular basis. His name's Cliff Ravenscraft, and he has uh, podcastanswerman.com um, and has a podcast there about podcasting. And that's what he does. He's, you know, he's, he's usually pretty polite, but at the same time says, um, hey, um, I get people asking me questions like this all the time. Um, I really want to help them, but... Uh, at, at this point, I get so many emails, I just can't. But just so you know, your answer is over here if you want it. And then if you need more clarification, you know, then call back in and I'll see if I can answer it on a future show. And seeing as how the show is the grab bag. <laughs> yeah. Well, his show usually is a grab bag. Questions that people have about it. So I'm going to skip the one about an attorney because I actually want to get an attorney on the show to talk about that. Huh. Interesting. Um, I want to get an attorney on to tell us what they can do for us, not just us tell them, tell people what we've used them for. They can charge us lots more money than we charge our clients. Yes, in many instances, <laughs> that is very true. So here's a question. Do you call yourselves, quote, Ruby freelancers or something else? Um, and then the follow-up is, do people hire you because you're a Ruby freelancer or because you can build, solve, fix X and your preferred hammer happens to be Ruby? I'm considering going into freelancing in a few months, and I don't think there's much local demand for Ruby work explicitly, but I'm sure there's demand for people, for business systems, internet, CRM, inventory, tele- telephony, whatever, or online line shops that could be built with Ruby. Huh. I like Rockstar. I'm a Rockstar. Well, how about Ninja or Pirate? Ooh, Pirate. Pirate, Ninja, Rockstar. Are... Pirate, Ninja, Rockstar. Yes. <laughs> I like it. Um, well, first I would, I would argue that there's actually quite a bit of Ruby work out there. It's just that, um, 
again, marketing, you just have to be known so it finds you. But there is quite a bit of it. And a lot um, of it's not advertised as Ruby work. It's also just advertised as we need help or software development or we have a project that's, you know, needing rescuing type stuff. But secondly, I, I don't know. I, I, I won't say I market myself in any one way. I, I've taken to using the term code janitor because I consider it ironic and because I tend to fix a lot of people's uh, code or have been gotten in the habit of fixing other people's code and I have a perverse, take a perverse pleasure in it. Um, I've been working mostly or almost entirely in Ruby for the many years now, but um, I have no aversion to doing it in other languages. I just keep getting pulled in to do it in Ruby. Um, and occasionally I do get pulled in just to consult on things in technical things in general, not just Ruby. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't say I'm a Ruby freelancer. I say that I'm a freelance software developer, freelance software developer. I am. <laughs> Damn it, Eric, you're making jokes in the chat room. <laughs> um, um, you should just read that. that. That's pretty that sentence, so I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that, the, the thing is, is I, I typically bill myself when I'm talking to people as a software consultant. You know, I tell them I specialize in building um, web-based applications, usually in Ruby. Um, I do have expertise in JavaScript and, you know, and I just kind of explain it that way. It seems like a good chunk of my, a good chunk of my clients that I've worked for in the past have, uh, they, you guys are really distracting. <laughs> at least it's not just me so so anyway they finally got chuck it's taken months <laughs> so so anyway um so one of the clients that i worked for for over a year he found me because he was looking for somebody who could build a, a twitter clone and it also worked out that uh, his brother-in-law had recommended that he look into ruby on rails and so i kind of got the best of both worlds there in some of the other cases it's it's really just been hey i need a you know a crm or you know some other thing or cms you know can you build it for me or can you modify the system that already does this so i've done a little bit of work with spree and a little bit of work with some of the other um some of the other software out there and then just done some customization on it so it, it depends i mean sometimes they just want the problem solved and in other cases they're actually looking for somebody with ruby expertise I think it works both ways. It just depends on what people are looking for. If they're looking for a Ruby person, then Ruby Freelance will probably work for you. If they're looking for a consultant who can solve the problem, then, you know, targeting the, that particular problem in the way that you address yourself is going to bring them to your door. And the way I've been kind of doing it is I've been a, you know, freelance Rails developer. And because, I mean, basically Rails is the bigger chunk of all the stuff and I've been doing it for a long time. And so it's like, that's kind of how I would market myself. And then, yeah, I can do non rail stuff like Sinatra stuff here and there, and you know, but I typically won't take on PHP. I typically restrict it to just Ruby or technically JavaScript too. And so I kind of branded that just more as a filter, but I mean, it's, it's not something I can go look for. It's like something I'd put like, you know, on my homepage and then have a description of my services that would go into more depth about what I would do. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to say, like, you know, I'm a Ruby freelancer. It's it's very vague, and it speaks to the technology, not actually the problem that a client might have. And so, you you know, this person might be good if they, like, if they've been doing CRM systems for a long time, you know, saying they're a web CRM system, you know, developer might be a better angle for them to do. And that yeah. might be something to look into, into the markets and what demand there is, too. I guess, you know, like, when I, when I, marketing myself. I, I say code janitor. I say that I mentor developers. I say that uh, um, that I write new apps. I, I don't necessarily just use a title. I guess I just describe, try to describe in a nutshell, the various things I tend to do for people. And I, I don't usually say Ruby freelancer. I just usually say freelance developer or something mm -hmm. like that. If someone just wants to know in two words what I do. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Because actually... Um, I was talking with some of my wife's coworkers at a dinner the other night, and I basically said that I run a software company where I build web applications. Like that's yeah. how I described it. And when they talked to me, I was like, "Yeah, I use Ruby on Rails," because this person knew a bit about software. Like his brother was in hardware or something, and so I was able to kind of get in more depth. But you know, I basically kind of take it as high level as I can. You know, 
the, the big thing for me is web applications, not websites or web design and not, you know, like desktop software. People still make that stuff. Yeah. One other thing, though, that I want to point out is that when you're talking to people, I mean, you you really have to focus what you do one way or the other. You know, you can be general and say, I build web pages or whatever. But on the web and on your website, I mean, you have you can you can brand it all kinds of different ways and and target those to different audiences and then try and bring in the traffic using different techniques for each one. And so you don't have to be you have to be narrow in your message, but you can put out multiple messages, you know, for different audiences. To a point, yeah, you can have different pages for right. different audiences, but if you have a That's what I'm if saying. If you try to do too many messages, you can get modeled, so I mean, like, I would try to think of, like, in your mind what you want to be and then see if you can expand out from that, like, you know, maybe one or two lines and, you know, make that kind of a cluster of how you want to do your branding or naming stuff. And also at the same time, it might not even matter. Like, it might just be overthinking the problem. Yeah. It, it, in a lot of cases, it may just be enough. Hey, I'm a Ruby person that you can hire to work for you 20 hours a week or whatever. So it, yeah, it just, it really just depends on where where your audience is looking and and what what it gets you. The next question is: What types of jobs do you accept, and what types of jobs do you refuse? And further, it says: What types of jobs do people approach Ruby and or Ruby on Rails freelancers to implement? There was a panelist on the Rates show mentioned that his company gets a lot of jobs to fix poorly implemented Rails apps. In the, is that common? Do you get people asking you to make websites? Is it mostly businesses doing e-commerce? Is there any pattern or trends that you see about the types of jobs that you get? So it seems like it's two questions because um, what types of jobs do you accept and what types of jobs do you refuse sounds more like when do you say yes and when do you say no? And then the other question is what types of jobs are you getting for Ruby and Rails? Right. So what what makes a job worth accepting or refusing? Let's go with that one first. I mean, there's the obvious of, you know, is this client going to pay me? Do they seem shady type stuff? But um, for me, my thing is, is it has to be a web application. Um, most of the time, I always try to do business type of web applications, like not stuff that goes to consumers, just because this consumer startup stuff, I don't, I don't have much of an interest in. And they're, they're kind of harder to do where like B2B stuff, it's a little bit easier. I, been doing B2B stuff for years, so it's easier to think about. Stuff I refuse, a lot of the pie in the sky dreaming of Facebook 2.0 stuff I refuse just because it's, I, I don't know. I, you I'm know sure how many it's of those fun, I've done? I don't like. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not laughing at you, Eric. I'm just laughing. I'm laughing because I've been there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably fun for some people and it's probably a rush and I'm sure there's some great applications and stuff there. It just, it's not for me. I mean, I've tried it. I've, I've never enjoyed it. It's always felt like a hamster yep. wheel for me. And so, so my, my thing is, so I've taken some of those jobs. I mean, honestly, you, you hit the main points. Are they going to pay? Is the project interesting? That kind of thing. But I've taken those kinds of jobs, the, the, the Facebook 2.0 or the, the Twitter 2.0 or whatever. And the, the thing that I really, like about them is that they usually have some interesting things to to fix or change in them. Now, when the client that I did the quote Twitter clone for uh, came to me, I was ready to tell him no. And the reason was because I just, I, I was trying to explain to him, look, you know, you have this thing out there called Twitter that does what you're telling me you want your, your thing to do because you said Twitter clone. And uh, you realize Twitter isn't making any money. So if they're not going to make money at this, you know, what makes you special? And he had an interesting spin to it. Now, if he had actually had a, a real good vision of where he wanted it to go and what his business model was, I think it probably would have been released by now. But he doesn't know how to sell it. He doesn't know, you know, all of these other things. And, and I, I feel kind of guilty for having, you know, done that much work and have had him put that much money into it just to have it not go anywhere. And, you know, he's got somebody else working on it now. But, but by all rights, at the time when you started working for him, you were convinced that he had a shot. Yes. And, so in, in yeah. that case, you had, you had done what you thought was reasonable due diligence. It's just that, as, as I like to tell people, I know, how, I know software development teams, I know software, but I don't know what makes a successful startup necessarily. 
I have some insight into it, and just like you have some insight into it, I'm sure. So you didn't necessarily have all the tools to evaluate whether he successfully. You just worked based on with what you knew. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I still feel kind of guilty. I have another guy that I built a social network for that was based around assigning and um, reporting on tasks to be done. And same kind of thing. I feel a little bit guilty because it never, it never came to fruition. It never happened for him. And, uh, I did this before the Twitter clone and, you know, he really didn't have a business model around it. Um, at least not one that he explained to me so that I could start thinking about how to build it in. And so, um, I think the idea was that he was going to have companies sign up for it or something. But again, you know, I, I really want, a I, if I don't see it as something that's going to be a success, I'm not going to work for these folks just because they're going to pay me. Right. And that's kind of what I'm driving at. So, you know, hopefully... I knew there was a reason I liked you, Chuck. <laughs> so hopefully there's there's a win in there for them and a win in there for me in the sense that we get something out there that people are using, that they're excited about, that, you know, solves a problem in the market, or at least that they can launch and say, hey, I have this business plan behind it. And then it can win or fail on its own, but but I want I want to take something to release. I, I don't want to just take your money until you're out of money, and then oh well, shucks, you know this thing didn't work. It, it's easy. To, I think it would be easy to be that guy who says, "Well, someone else is going to take their money, so better me than them." But I, I I'm completely with you there. I would hate to. I, I will not do a project just just to get money, just to get paid if I'm convinced it'll fail. I, I've spent way too many years working for the government on projects that should have succeeded and didn't, or projects that never really had much of a chance to. Sorry, my phone. Um, so, completely with you there. But first, I gotta stop and say this is just a great question, because this is the, the, the please give us completely self-serving answers question, isn't it? It's the, tell, the, I mean, really, it's the, tell us what kinds of projects you accept and which ones you don't. So please advertise to us on the podcast. Um, um, oh, I just, wait, uh, can I take my answer and redo it then? <laughs> <laughs> do you have some, do you have some, uh, some, some copy you should have read during that, that section there, Eric? According um, to my website. <laughs> um, for me, it's um, one of the first and most important things is, is this someone that I want to work with? It's not, it's not just, will they pay me? Even before I get to the, will they pay me? Will they pay me? It's do I, what sort of, what's my first impression of the person? Is this someone who I feel comfortable, comfortable talking to or uncomfortable talking to? If I feel uncomfortable, why? Um, and at the same time, there's of course all the the purely practical parts of will you know, do they have money to pay me? Because what kinds of projects do I turn down? Kinds where people come to me and say, "Well, I have this great idea, but I don't have any money." Well, thanks, you just wasted both of our time there mm -hmm. uh, because you know I have to earn a living and I can't just take options. If I wanted to just take stock in a company, I'd come up with my own great idea and I wouldn't be freelancing. I would be building it and making gobs of money, maybe do with something I care about passionately. So yeah, other things I, I look for in projects are things that, that appeal to me personally. Um, technical challenge, an excellent team to work with, although if they have an excellent team, why do they want me there? I'm terrible. No, why would seriously if you have an if you have an excellent team, why would you want any of us unless you really just need you know more manpower, which I guess I've seen a little bit of sometimes um, with with a few startups. But most companies that have lots of great people don't need a freelancer don't need consultants, but yeah, um, and and they usually with those great people have a really good way of finding more great people, right? Because they already have great people. Yeah. And there's a startup that shall remain nameless, but there's one that was doing that was like that, and then they recently took a big hit. So sometimes, sometimes I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, that's a tangent. I I don't know where I was going with it. I'm going to stop there. But yeah, so, it is important to work with people that you want to work yeah. with. Working, working with people you want to work with, ideally working in an area that's interesting to you, at least so that the time feels like it's worthwhile beyond just getting paid, which will probably end up being a topic of a different episode we talked about doing. Kinds of projects I refuse. Well, I'd already mentioned the kind where they, they can't pay me, if that's one. Um, the kind where I get a, a bad read on a customer for one reason or another. Um, the kind where I'm unconvinced that and the client can't convince me that their project will be successful because I don't want to just rob them blind. Um, and when I'm not convinced, just as Chuck said, I'll call them on it um, just in the initial discussion and say, I, I want, I have 
doubts because of X, Y, and Z. Maybe they can convince, convince me. Great. If they can't, well, I point out to them maybe they. Should, uh, I'd point out to them maybe you should be considering something else because this doesn't seem like a good use of your money. Yeah, on that point, I also usually will try and approach them and say, "Look, if you want me to consult with you for a couple hours every week until you can get these issues ironed out, because sometimes they'll listen to you and then they'll go, "Yeah, those are really things that I need to address," and you know, I'm happy to help them find the answers, but yeah, you know, I, I'm not that- going to bill them a bunch of time coding until they know which direction they're heading. It's an interesting point. I've, I've worked with one client like exactly like that, basically. The one where I say I kind of like contract CTO, it's I tried to help them solve big picture issues. And then when we got to a point where they could use some code, then I, then I did some code for them. But yeah. a lot of it was trying to just little bit of the time help them understand trying to frame the problem. So I guess that's it for me in a nutshell. Again, I like the question. Yep. So then the other half of the question is, what types of projects do you guys typically wind up working on? Are they are they the fix-it-up projects? Are they the just general websites, e-commerce, social networks? I'll start this time. We've, we've talked about this before by degrees in all the episodes. I'm still here, right? Because my monitor turned... Yeah, I am. You are still here. Yeah, okay. Because both of my screens decided to go blank at the same time. It was weird. Um... I, I tend to work for startups. Eric ten, was, was doing enterprisey stuff. Now he's doing different stuff. He'll talk about it. I tend to work on existing code bases and try to improve them. Um, but as I also have said before, I like working with existing teams and I try to help them, try to help teach them how to fish better. Um, so that way they're making better mistakes rather than the same old mistakes. And I try to help dig them out of those holes. That's really pretty typical for me. And uh, that's my bread and butter. That's most of my projects. I think that's funny because most of my projects have been Greenfield or pretty close to Greenfield. And uh, a lot of them have been things that I've been able to do myself. I've only really been involved in one project that had a team of developers around it. And uh, that's the one I'm on right now. So anyway, uh, Eric, how about you? So a lot of mine came from Redmine and Chili Project. So... Most of those were around like process automation and kind of reporting business intelligence stuff. You know, basically they have all this data, make, make sense of it. Um, kind of doing, I guess, kind of more business to business startup stuff now. Um, at least I'm, that's what I'm getting into more just to kind of have a, a different taste, different, you know, different challenges, different kind of perspectives. Um, like Evan said, a lot of my stuff used to be more enterprise where it's just an internal app run by a company, you know, that sort of thing. So scaling's not a problem, that sort of idea. Yeah. And I think that's it. I don't think I've done, I've done some e-commerce, but most of that's been internal business backend, like the actual credit card processing, stuff like that. And then nothing really, not really very much public apps actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. I've worked on one e-commerce that was under NDA because I was subcontracting for a firm here in Utah. Um, and then I, I don't think I really answered this question before. So the other ones have been mostly social networks of one sort or another. And the, I did one, which was actually a maintenance contract on it. it the website is theboldetalic.com. It's a kind of an eclectic news site that's run by Gannett Press. They're the folks that, uh, that do USA Today and it's focused in San Francisco. So. That's that's more or less it. I think we have time for another question here. Uh, and this one is, how do you deal with uncertainty or risk, complexity, unknown, scope creep, uh, when writing a statement of work? Ooh, that's a, how do you deal with, un- that is such a big one. I love that one. I'm trying to figure out where to start. Someone so, else go first. So, so one thing I want to throw on this is just that if you're hourly and they're just going to pay you programming regardless of what it is then they just pay for it because it takes more time well yeah but and i do this a lot for my clients even when i'm hourly i'm routinely pointing out the cost benefit trade-offs because that's i think that's what a lot of the when i'm working with clients that's where i see a lot of the risk is when something might be excessively costly in terms of time and or money um, and where there might be cheaper alternatives that have, of course, come at a different kind of trade-off, and routinely trying to make them aware of those. Um, 
But that's what you you put that in your statement of work. I mean, I define that, but I define that in conversations with them, not necessarily in this is what I'm going to be. I I don't necessarily do a statement of work per se. I mean, I I do, I guess it was, we talked about a discovery process where I give them a breakdown of the tasks I see involved. And what I tend to do is I try to mitigate risk up front. That is, I try to identify all the areas that I consider to be higher risk. Um, I punch up their cost accordingly. That is that um, they get higher values in my estimates because they're riskier. And I front load them onto the schedule for the activity. And I explain to the client that I consider these particular areas to be risky. That's why they appear at the top. And that if they engage me, then the first things I tackle are almost universally the highest areas of risk. So that if there's going to be a problem with the cost and or schedule, that they'll be aware of it right away. If they don't like um, the way things are going as a result, they can fire me, and I'm okay with that. Um, I've never had that happen, though. Yeah, I was going to say, I usually try and talk through it with them, but if if I sign a contract for I'll work so many hours and you pay me so much per hour, then you know, then yeah, we, we just talk through it. It doesn't come out in the statement of work for me anyway. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, it's, I do like, like what you said, Evan, have, you know, these are the big risks we should focus on them first, but that's typically not in the statement of work, at least as far as with an hourly type contract with right. a fixed one. That's a different story. I mean, that's where you would probably, you know, you're making estimates, you're taking on the risk of the uncertainty and, you know, it's kind of the idea of double your estimate, pad it, whatever you have to do. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't ever do fi- fixed. I just do hourly. So I just try to explain to them how I'm going to minimize their risk. Mm-hmm. And if they don't like how I'm minimizing it as I go, then I tell them to fire me aggressively. Yeah. The other thing is, is, uh, I have done some fixed bids in the past and, you know, I'll probably do some in the future. The other thing is, is I become very, very, very specific in the statement of work. So, you know, as much as I can, I explain this is what you get. You know, this is exactly what you get. You don't get any more or any less. And just just nail it down as much as possible. But there are definitely going to be some areas where you just don't know. That's one of the reasons I never do fixed bid. I've seen so much of that in the government space. And what invariably happens is that one side or the other wants to go back to the negotiating table or, or rather is forced to bring both parties to the negotiating table again because there was something that one side or the other didn't foresee, which requires a contract renegotiation. And that just seems like such a pain in the ass. Yeah, you you do have to deal with contract renegotiations. Um, On most of the fixed bids, if I give them a contract with a fixed bid, then it also explains in there that, you know, if if we're going to negotiate more work, then, you know, that's going to be under a new contract. And then if they want to renegotiate the work that's currently in the statement of work, then I usually add a fee onto that just to make it, just to make them think, is this really what I want? Is this really the direction I want to go? Am I okay with this statement of work as it stands? Because if not, then it's going to cost me to change it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard either way. You're going to have, you know, I have to be very, very verbose or you're going to have to talk about it again. I mean, my general take on fixed bid is if you can keep them short with, you know, quick deliverables, kind of small deliverables yeah. and cycle through 10 fixed bid contracts instead of one big one. I found that's easier because then you can renegotiate, you know, each time you renew it, but, but you still prefer hourly over that, I assume. Yeah. I mean, it's, it depends. I've had some clients where they say they cannot accept an hourly contract. They have to have a fixed bid and it's kind of weird, but I've had know. that once or twice. I, I, I sympathize. You probably saw that more in the enterprise, right? Yeah. I think yeah. that, yeah, that was my big, big client type thing. I, I had one enterprise client who didn't last very long with me where it was something where there was something like that. And we negotiated out something wonky and that and then then the businessy aspect had nothing to do with why it didn't work out. But it yeah, I I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, the one that it worked out, but it was kind of like we ended up with a contract that defined A and everyone on the project knew that it actually we'd be doing B, but we had to do A just to satisfy to get it through the bureaucracy. And I mean, it worked out fine, but it was just one of those kind of awkward contract writing processes. Yep. That sounds exactly like what I did for being vague. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Any more on that one? Not here. Next issue. The next one is, um, it actually starts out, hi, this is a question, not a topic. It says, I've had a presence on LinkedIn for years. 
but never bothered to gather recommendations. I now think it would be good to start building them. My question is, should I go back to my old jobs, clients, colleagues, some of whom I may have had little or no contact for years except maybe already being connections on LinkedIn and ask them to post a reference? These are people who I trust would give me a good write-up or just start fresh from my current activities. If I do go back, and sh should I care that LinkedIn shows the date the recommendation was posted and it would be obvious that they're all recently added? I don't. A, you should go back anyway because, hello, source of potential business. I mean, if these are people you had a good relationship with, then you should maintain that relationship and possibly want to work with them. At least I would tend to think so. Uh, well, B, counterpoint, I mean, are they going to remember you? I mean, don't just say, like, jump back and say, hey, buddy. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, build the, up a relationship well, again. Well, of course. I mean, you yeah, but you also might be surprised. On the other hand, they might be glad you came back, too. You don't know, right? I mean, you don't know until you try. But, uh, yeah, you should, totally. And I wouldn't worry about the date so much better to, to have – endorsements of some form than not have any. Yeah. One thing that I want to uh, put in here really quickly is that if you're doing a lot of marketing on LinkedIn, then you definitely want, I mean, this is definitely something you should do. If you're not doing a lot or people aren't really finding you on LinkedIn, I mean, it may or may not be worth your time to go do it. Uh, asking for recommendations doesn't take a lot of time, but um, at the same time, I mean, it really just depends on what your approach is. If you're, if you're very active on LinkedIn and, and really trying to, you know, hit some of the lists and make contacts and things like that through LinkedIn, then by all means, go out, go for it. Um, one other thing that occurs to me too is that those recommendations are probably pretty good, uh, ways of getting like testimonials. And so then you can reach back out to the people who write you the reviews and say, Hey, can I use your quote on my website or this or however? And, uh, you know, then, then you have something that you can put up somewhere else that says, you know, so-and-so said, you know, John, this was posted by John. John is a really good worker or John, John solved this problem really, really, really well. And, uh, you know, made my life immensely easier. And I would recommend him to anybody, that kind of stuff. So, uh, those are just some ideas that come to mind, but you know, I, I rarely have people reach me through LinkedIn, so I don't pay as much attention to it as, as this is kind of implying that you might want to. Other thoughts? I mean, I don't use LinkedIn that much. I've thought about using it more, but I, I, I don't know. I just, I haven't seen many people come from it. And so it's kind of the idea of I'm going to invest in the channels that are working the best for me. And so LinkedIn hasn't been one of them. And so I haven't put time into it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it never hurts to go back, whether it's on LinkedIn or any other network or even just via email and, you know, talk to past colleagues or clients or employers and just build a relationship there. I mean, they might refer you stuff or, you know, maybe even you could help them. Like if they're looking to hire someone new that, you know, in your network who's looking for a job, you know, just, you know, social skills, people skills stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't invest an awful lot in LinkedIn either. I'm, honestly, I don't take it that seriously. I've gotten lots of recruiters through LinkedIn, but that doesn't help me find work. Um, maybe if I did more of Jim did, uh, maybe I would get some contracts through them. I don't know if I'd like them or not. But uh, occasionally, I guess I get a, a ping or two from from there. But just as Eric said, I, I focus more on what works, but also what I enjoy. And uh I mean, LinkedIn, I guess, so I go back to LinkedIn occasionally because it's a little bit of fun because it does let me see what other folks are up to in, in ways that some other um, social networks don't. But uh, I really don't spend much time there. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know if we want to do one more question or not. Um, eh. Okay. We'll do, we'll do one more and then we'll get to the picks. So um, I, I have to ask, this one's on working on a retainer. Is that worth a whole show or is that something that we want to just uh, you know, is, is uh, another five minute question. Um, first off, if you want to hire me on a retainer, yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> we could probably, we could probably touch on it and then do a show. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's go ahead and just talk about it for a few minutes. And then if we feel like there's a whole show's worth, then we'll attack it another week. I looked at doing into doing that once for a maintenance contract. I was starting to put together for a client, but then I decided I didn't want to work with that client anymore, so then I dropped it. So yeah. that that's really all I got to say about that. So for me, a retainer is we want to guarantee that you'll be able to do so much work for us every month. Right. So, other, so, 
that's why I, it made sense for a maintenance agreement. Yeah. So it's kind of a placeholder in your schedule, more or less, that they're paying for. And then you give them so many hours or whatever every month. Well, well, guaranteed availability. Not right. necessarily the hours that you promise them the availability. Right. Yes. Well, it depends. This is I've gone back and forth with this with one client who had me on a retainer. There's kind of two types of retainers. There's the bucket of hours, and then there's the on-call. Like, bucket of hours is... Chuck, we want, you know, 10 hours a month of, of your time, you know, up to 10 hours. We might want five this month, whatever you bill us for, whatever you use. And then there's the on-call, which is like, Chuck, we're going to pay you, uh, like right here, it says $500 a month for you to be on-call, and you will provide us with up to five hours of work. See, so that, one way... It doesn't sound like a retainer, though. To me, that just sounds like a constrained hourly agreement. And that's Yeah, exactly. One is typically like an hourly agreement with a budget that's typically a long term. And the other one is more of like the lawyerly type retainer where you're going to get this fixed amount of money and you're going to work a variable amount of work. Yeah, I typically think of it as the second, not the first. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm just saying like this, this client was on, he had me on a retainer and then some of his clients were on both different types of retainers. And so that he was actually the first one that kind of showed me that people use the word retainer for different things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the industry with different industries or different things like from the training, but yeah, it's just, there's a bunch of weird different ways of doing retainers. And you're sure this client wasn't crazy. No, I'm sure. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, th I know this guy's business. He's not crazy or if he okay, is, just he's checking. fooling a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So, so the thing that really, uh, uh, occurs to me is that in the second case, it seems like a win win for you because you may not have to work those hours they're paying you for. But at the same time, it's a win for them because they know that if they need those hours, you got them. And so it works out. You know, it's it's not a, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you this month. It's, well, we paid you for so many hours and it's okay. Well, I will give you so many hours this month if you need them. Um, So it, it, it works out. It makes sense. I don't know as far as I, I mean, I don't feel bad about taking a retainer if that's what they need, but I, I've never yeah, actually I mean, I've, done it. I've done both. I've done, you know, the bucket of hours type thing. And that, I mean, like you guys said, it's basically a long-term hourly contract. Yeah. I've and done that with you. I've retainer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that's the one that's kind of questionable to me, but it, the, what we actually decided on made sense and it worked for both parties. But I think I was on that with a couple clients. I think one of them was like two or three years straight. Um, and that's, it's a good one. I mean, it's, you have to deal with a stable client. Like you don't want to start off on a retainer because there's no relationship there. You don't know how you guys are going to work out. Right. Um, and like, I think it was Evan, you said it like maintenance stuff is really good for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the standard type of retainer where they're basically paying you a fixed fee and you're providing them a certain amount of work. Um, I've done that more as a support contract, like, you know, Eric will be available between these hours and will basically be on call if something happens to handle emergencies. And that was really good for me because it actually, I got their system set up in such a way where it was stable. And so I wasn't called that much. And so I didn't have to do that much work. And so that's, it's a very, that's a lucrative one, but it's also one to be careful with because it can go either way, you know, because you are only going to get a certain amount of money and, you know, if it ends up that your estimates are wrong or something goes off, you know, you could be in the hole. And that's kind of oh, the same no, risk that, that you find that, fixed. That's what I was going to say is that I would say, I would say that, that for what I was planning on doing, because I had thought this one through a lot, I just didn't execute on it, was that the retainer would be good for up to X number of hours. And that there would end up having to be other agreements that would work beyond X number that would, that would be involved beyond X number of hours. Also for support, what also seemed very important. And this is, I think this is, is still relevant for retainer perhaps, well, perhaps um, that for a support agreement, at least specifically that the response, that your responsiveness to their request also should in, should induce a scaling fee. That if they, that is to say, if they expect you to respond within an hour and, and be working on it within an hour, that that's one very high dollar amount within a day, another dollar amount, and a sliding fee downward. But yep. that's that's augmentative. So that's not just a, a fixed amount. That's above and beyond. Yeah, yeah, I'm, and that's what I did. Is I basically gave them a couple options with different SLAs of 
you know, do you want a 24 hour response right. fix? Do you want a, you know, put like next business day fix type thing? And, you know, they picked whatever was good for their budget for what they needed. And like I said, because the system ended up being stable, there's very few issues, but that's where if you, you can get yourself in a bind if you're booked on other client stuff and all of a sudden all your retainer stuff needs to be worked on too. And if you have an SLA, like, it's just, you just got to be careful, I guess, looking at your restrictions and looking at you know, well, worst case you, scenarios. You can't assume the SLA is "quote unquote" free money. You have to. The the prudent way to do it would be to assume that that time is already spoken for. You just don't always have to work it. I mean, you could hedge your bets a little bit and maybe slightly overbook. But then, if you're slightly overbook and you get called on it, then as you kind of point out, you have to work all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did it. I th- I can't remember exactly. I think it was. Based on that contract, I would book other clients for like four days out of the work week and kind of leave one day as a floating day. And if nothing happened, I would do the other client work, but I would always have that floating day that I could pull in if I needed to do that support stuff. And then plus, you know, nights and weekends if it was really bad. I've been on call before and I'll tell you right now that uh, my rate on an SLA that is anything less than a, a day or two. In fact, even at that rate is probably going to be at least double my <laughs> billable rate. Uh-huh. Yep. I, I, I've been there and I just, I, I don't really want to do it. And so they're going to really, really, really want me doing that. If, if, you know, to the point where they're paying double or triple my billable uh-huh. rate in order to get it. I, I completely agree. SLA was exactly the right term. I, I just, I get, I heard it before. I guess I didn't quite have it in my lingo when I was first thinking about this, but Chuck, I, I was planning on, I, I had proposed essentially the same thing to this client that if they wanted immediate or essentially immediate turnaround that that would be a very high dollar figure if they wanted it within a day that would be somewhere like three four times my hourly rate and as i explained them the point was i wanted to disincentivize them from asking for high turnaround fixes or 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 if they wanted a new feature specifically from coming to me and saying well we need this and we need it tomorrow well if you really need it tomorrow i'm going to make it cost you a lot because it's going to be a pain in the ass for me yeah yeah, if you need it tomorrow, I'm going to be working six six to eight hours on it, and it's going to cost you eight grand. And you're <laughs> going to be working six to eight hours on it after already doing six to eight hours for someone else, maybe. Yeah. So you're going to be very unhappy camper doing it. So to, to me, that that's a lot of it, what a lot of it came down to is if you're going to inconvenience me, I'm going to make sure you are at least in equally inconvenienced, so that way you won't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but if you really want it, it's there. You just have to really want it that badly. Yep. Yeah. And for me, it's not so much, I mean, inconvenience plays into it, but it's a business risk. I mean, you know, if you have an SLA or a long-term commitment and it's an unknown, if you're going to have to use that time, you have to kind of change how you book stuff. So they're basically taking up availability, but not. And so you have the opportunity cost. But I mean, in my opinion, I think retainers, whatever model you do can be good, um, especially with existing clients and they're, Basically, there's something I try to pull out of my little bag of tricks when I'm talking with a client, but it's don't force fit them. I mean, I think retainers are great for support or maintenance or any kind of long-term kind of slow work stuff. Like if you want to do a retainer for like retrospectives or, you know, maybe kind of a higher level coaching level stuff, I think retainers are pretty good for that. Yep. All right. Well, Eric, what are your picks? Okay, so um, my first pick, because I've been using it for a little bit, is my new microphone, which probably makes me sound better than me sitting in a cellar. I um, thought you were going to say it makes me sound better than Evan, which would also be true. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no one sounds so, better than me. I have an awesome voice. <laughs> or a weird one. Yeah, all right. Um, anyways, so I didn't want to. I don't want to get another USB type microphone because from what I see, most USB microphones are kind of on the low end. I was the one to get like an XLR system, but most XLR systems are on the high end. Like if you talk to Chuck and his system, I mean, we don't have 50 minutes here for him to describe it, but you know, they get pricey and they get complicated. And the other side is I wanted to actually use a good mic if I did screencasts and it's kind of hard to get an XLR into your computer for screencasting. So I was just browsing around and I ended up coming across the Audio-Technica ATR 2100 USB, and we'll have a link so you don't have to try to type that out, but it's basically a dynamic USB and XLR microphone. And right now it's $43 on Amazon. The nice thing about it is it comes with the mic, um, 
the USB cables, the XLR cables, a little desktop tripod stand. And it's great because I can start with USB and use it for screencasts. And then if I decide to get, you know, fancy deluxe podcasting system like Chuck, I can go and upgrade to all the XLR equipment and use the same mic for a little bit with that. So it's pretty nice and it's, you know, very inexpensive on Prime on Amazon. And it's like, you know, if I break it, it's just 40 bucks and I'll buy another one. Yeah, I have the previous uh, generation of that mic. It's a pretty decent mic. So, um, Evan, what are your picks? Okay, um, so I did more travel lately, and before I traveled, I guess I got a, a few more whiz-bangy kind of things that actually did make my trip a whole lot better, so I figured those are worth mentioning. Um, I bought a Nexus 7 lately, um, and this is odd for me as an iOS guy who's only tried Android once out of the past five years. Um for those of you, darn you, Eric, stop making jokes in the chat room. For those of you who, who are um, Android people, yeah, fine, you already think Android's wonderful. iOS people, Nexus, the Nexus 7 is pretty fast. It's not as fast as, say, uh, an, an iPad 4. Um, maybe it's a little bit more like an iPad 2. But the great thing about it is the form factor. Okay, so people will say, iPad mini, yeah, but... Uh, I wanted essentially a glorified book reader because I read stuff on the, you know, from Kindle all the time, but the Kindle, um, Android device isn't quite as nice. And, um, you can get a Nexus 7 for 200 bucks, whereas an iPad mini is a minimum of 330. Uh, for some reason, 200 bucks, at least in my brain, just seemed a lot more reasonable than 330, even though, yes, I know the iPad mini could use all of my apps, well, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the iPad mini has the, the highly pixelated screen compared to the Nexus 7, which is, um, it's not retina quote unquote quality, but it's pretty nice. So, um, when I, I was stomping around Toronto, I was wearing my shiny new Scott Evest fleece jacket 7.0. Um, and the reason I love this thing is because I carry, when I'm, when I'm a road warrior, I have my backpack with me almost everywhere. And that's kind of my office in a bag minus my iMac. And, um, the, um, the Scott Evest really is pretty freaking amazing in that I can actually get a lot of the salient parts of my backpack in my jacket. I had my phone, I had my Nexus 7, I had my iPad in there once upon a time. I can fit an 11-inch iMac in there instead of the iPad, but it just feels like a piece of body armor then. Um, a passport, <laughs> a pen, um, I, I had, I'm serious, it feels like a, a body armor plate in my jacket when I have got my iMac in there. It's just, it's a little bit bigger in, I mean, my iMac, my, uh, MacBook Air 11 inches is what I meant. If that's not what I said. Oh, okay, it. that's a bit better. Yeah, I put my iMac in my in my jacket. Right, that would be pretty wild. Um, there it's is a bag one of holding. Yeah, it kind of feels. I'm serious. It kind of feels like one. There are. They claims there are 23 pockets, but when they say there are 23 pockets, some of them are little tiny ones for for stowing things like pens or earbuds or whatever. But um, the jacket's just kind of amazing because I, I I have I had so many things I usually need at my fingertips, um, or okay near my fingertips most of the time, and I didn't have to carry my backpack everywhere. So um, I loved that thing. It cost 160 bucks, which is you know, a little bit high, but um, for the utility I got out of it, I, it's it's been great. The Nexus Seven is a lovely book reader, which is my primary use case for it. So I mean, if that jacket can carry your iMac around, I mean, that's a pretty good cover. Well, you know, it almost could carry it. There, there's one really big pocket in the back of the Scotty vest that I really don't know what the heck I would ever use it for. Um, but it's not going to fit an iMac, but it could easily fit a couple of 11-inch MacBook Airs. You could probably fit a 13-inch, maybe, maybe even a 15-inch Mac in the back pocket. I don't know why you'd want to because it's at your lumbar level, which means that you would probably sit on it and break it. Um, so I don't know what that pocket's really for. <laughs> awesome. I've, I've seen these and they look incredible. So the, the older ones I thought looked a little clunkier, but the new ones, it looks like a jacket. Yeah. So just to clarify, your, your picks are the Scotty vest and the Nexus 7? And the Nexus 7. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right, so I've got a couple of picks. Um, my first pick is uh, something that I've been playing with for the last day or so. I've played with it off and on for a while, uh, but it's it's made building a halfway decent-looking website really easy. It's uh, Twitter Bootstrap. Um, just, just nice because then I don't have to do a whole lot of design stuff, and then I can tweak it 
from there because it already looks okay. Um, the other pick that I have is a television show that I've been watching with my wife on Netflix and then on Amazon Prime, whatever the heck that's supposed to be. And, instant video. Yeah, instant video. And it is uh, Downton Abbey, which you would kind of think, eh. But it, it's actually really good. Um, it, my parents have been watching that. I don't know a thing about it, but they keep talking about it. Yeah, it takes place in England um, right before and then during World War One, and uh, so it's it's kind of funny because they get electricity in, in in their house, and then they get a telephone in their house, and um, and then of course everybody, all the characters and stuff are interacting and manipulating and stuff. It's really really kind of an interesting show. So uh, those are my picks. Uh, Eric, what are your picks? We already did my picks. <laughs> I, we really confounded Chuck today. Oh, man. <laughs> it must be getting like late. You, I was going to say, it looks like you picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. <laughs> so I'm picking my microphone this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, Eric, could you Evan, tell us about Evan, didn't you get a jacket? That's pretty nice. Why don't you tell us about that? I heard you could fit an iMac in it. I didn't tell you guys about the jacket already. Let me tell you about the uh, the jacket that fits my iMac. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Anyway, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about really quickly. My last pick for this week are amphetamines. Chuck needs them. Send them to him. (laughs) I'm going to get these packages in the mail. (laughs) You're going to have the... uh, My wife's going to be like, what are these? A bunch of white powder on the label. Yeah. Anyway, you're gonna one... have the ATF showing up at your door soon. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, I'm also gonna do a little bit of shameless self promotion. Um, I've been working on. Okay, so DEA. Thanks. <laughs> I, I don't. Why? Why is Chuck gonna be away from the keyboard? <laughs> so I've been working on this uh, this eight eight video series. Or, ugh, I can't even talk anymore, you guys. I've been working on this series of eight right. videos that I'm going to be um, right. presenting between March 1st and, and April 30th. Um, the first is actually going to be on March 6th, and the last one will be on April 24th. Anyway, I've had a lot of people talking to me about the different ways that they've been trying to learn Ruby on Rails. And essentially what it came down to is that they wish that they had more coaching and more live coding examples. And so the presentations are going to include those. And if you sign up for all eight, then you'll get some coaching along with it. If you just want to bone up on one or two areas of Rails, then you can just sign up for the the relevant videos. Anyway, um, you can go sign up for that at railsrampup.com. It's not up right now if you guys go look, but it will be up when this uh, when this episode goes out so um, go check it out and uh, sign up 